City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar, brought to you here at the City University of New York. I'm Jim Houghton. I'm the Artistic Director of Signature Theatre Company. It's my great pleasure to serve as moderator today for our discussion about playwrights and new plays. On our panel today is a distinguished group of writers with diverse experiences and visions in the theatre, who share in common having new plays and new works presented in New York this season. To my far right, sitting uh, is playwright, screenwriter, and novelist Paul Rudnick, the author of Jeffrey and I Hate Hamlet. His play, Bahala, is receiving its premiere at New York Theatre Workshop, and his newest film, The Stepford Wives, debuts this summer. His articles and essays have appeared in Vogue, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Premiere, and The New York Times. Next to him is Julia Jordan, who's seen four of her plays produced in New York this year. St. Scarlet, Summer of the Swans, Tatiana in Color, and Boy. She has also written the musicals The Mice, presented as part of Harold Prince's Three, and Sarah Plain and Tall. Her work has been commissioned and workshopped by many organizations and theaters across the country. Her plays have been published by Smith and Krauss and by Vintage. Nilo Cruz sits to my immediate right, is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Anna and the Tropics. His other plays, seen across the country, include Lorca in the Green Dress, Two Sisters and a Piano, and Dancing on Her Knees. His newest play, Beauty of the Father, just premiered at Miami's New Theater. He is one of this country's most produced Cuban-American writers. Regina Taylor on my left is actress and a playwright. Um, her play, Drowning Crow, uh, her adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull, is soon to open a Manhattan Theater Club. Her play, Crowns, seen in New York last season, is receiving productions across the country. Her current projects include a musical adaptation of Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, and The Dreams of Sarah Breedlove, a look at legendary beauty entrepreneur, Madam C.J. Walker. And finally, we have Terrence McNally, the recipient of four Tony Awards. His long list of works, both plays and musicals, include Ragtime, Masterclass, The Lisbon Traviata, Love, Valor, Compassion, and Kiss of the Spider-Woman, as well as the libretto for the opera Dead Man Walking. He has received a citation from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His newest work, The Stendhal Syndrome, is premiering at primary stages. Well, first of all, welcome to all of you, and thanks for particip participating today in our discussion. It's my hope that today that we might have the opportunity to illuminate some of the challenges and issues that confront the American playwright. And uh, through that discussion, help all of us identify through your various experiences, you know, how we might all come to a better understanding of our role, whether that's as an audience member, as an artist, or as a writer, in the process of creating new work 
um, and watching new work evolve. So I guess I'd like to just start by running down the panel and having each of you talk a bit about what the evolution of the current project you're working on has been from sort of the incubator to its current production. So why don't we start with you, Terrence? Um, talk about the current place, yes. Stendhal yeah. Syndrome. Well, uh, Stendhal Syndrome is a little different in that it's two related one-act plays, which I want to be performed together, but I suppose they would make sense if they were done apart. Um, they're unusual in that they're, they haven't been workshopped to death. They, I wrote them. Uh, one is quite old. Uh, uh, the second act, uh, Prelude and Lipistot, I wrote nine years ago. And I knew I liked it, but I didn't know what to do with it, so I put it in a drawer. And then I, two years ago, got an idea of a play to, that would go with it and call the evening the Stendhal Syndrome. And it was given to primary stages, and they said, we'd love to do it, which was breathtaking because I'm sure you'll hear from the others. Usually that's very interesting script you've sent us. We'd, let's do a reading. Or our dramaturg has some notes for you. And it was kind of like the old days when I started in the 60s. You wrote a play and it got produced. Yeah. And it's changed. So this is um, not a typical experience to have the play just done, especially in New York without prior. Uh, I'm obviously the oldest person on the panel. And uh, the theater has changed a lot since I began. Uh, to today, so my experiences are going to be quite different from the other other panelists. But um, this is there's nothing wrong with workshop and development, but I think very often they become an excuse not to do the play. Uh, if I was a dramaturg, and I'm very glad I'm not, I, I consider them really the enemy, and I'm very hostile to them. And I wonder why I'm so hostile when they say this is our dramaturg. The hairs on my neck stand up, and. Uh, I haven't never found one I thought was remotely charming. I think they're <laughs> sort of beady-eyed, and they don't even try to ingratiate themselves. They just say, I've got some notes for you. You know, and that's, no playwright wants to hear that, like, hello, how are you? I love your play. You don't usually get that. Um, but if I were a dramaturg, I would find a lot wrong with Hamlet, which is probably my favorite play. Mm. But, you know, what happens to Gertrude when, she, when Hamlet <laughs> tells, you know, it's very unwritten the, how you, an actress, would play the last uh, 45 minutes of Hamlet. A lot of questions in that play. And I think plays have to have a life to them. And I think dramaturgs, it's what happens in American culture. I think, you know, uh, we have big books, you know, Barnes and Nobles is chasing the little guy out of business. Plays with dramaturgs get sort of homogenized, I feel. And I go to the theater to hear the unique voice of a writer, not what someone has fashioned it into. And uh, they were not around when I started writing plays. Uh, everybody had their own voice. You, a play by Lanford Wilson was nothing like a play by Edward Albee. And now that sometimes I feel People are getting a little more homogenized. And dramaturgs have too much to say. And I think plays can be rewritten too much. And I, I learn a lot from readings. When I usually, when I finish a play, I give it to my actor friends and say, come on over, I'll give you a coffee and Danish and just hear it. But that's not the same as endless readings and development. And I think there, with so many people, their input, how the play should turn out, can sort of flatten it out. I like the bumps and warts in a play that, you know, maybe they're not perfect, but hey, that's only something Nala Cruz would write, you know, and yeah. I like that. And so that's what I, I think is the biggest change. Plays take years to get on, and musicals even more, and they've sort of been too many people have had at them. 
and I'll share that now. No, I look, I look forward to exploring. You've, you've definitely uh, hit upon a very sensitive subject that I'm sure everyone on this panel has something to say about, which I'd like to table that until um, uh, we finish going through the panel. Regina, how about you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Drowning Crow? And th that was commissioned, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was commissioned by the Goodman Theater. It was first done at the Goodman Theater a couple of years ago. And it is an adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull. Uh, it's one of my favorite plays, and I wanted to explore what that was about. Uh, why does it have such resonance for me? Uh, in doing that, I started having a, a conversation with Anton, and it was, uh, you know, what does he have to say to me? This uh, Russian guy living so many years ago, uh, uh, what does he have to say to me, a black woman from Dallas, Texas? Uh, in that, it was um, really uh, wonderful, just, just the universal themes of uh, I'm in love with somebody who doesn't want me, you know, unrequited love. Uh, everyone's in love with someone who... Mm, won't reciprocate. Uh, it's also about finding one's voice, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to be recognized um, by someone special and then in the larger audience uh, as an artist and as a human being. Uh, and then uh, uh, just, just uh, discovering parts of Chekhov, which was that his background is that of, of serfs. Uh, his people were serfs, slaves, uh, and that really uh, uh, gives his perspective uh, uh, on the world and through his writing. Uh, it, it is a very harsh caste system uh, in his time, uh, and uh, it's a stigma throughout his whole life. Uh, you have a generation that remembers serfdom in this play. It's also a generational play. You have uh, a generation that remembers serfdom, slavery. You have a generation that fought really hard for social change to become upwardly mobile. And then you had a generation after that that's not so tied to its roots, uh, has forgotten its roots, and is kind of looking for a moral compass. And you don't know if the ch this generation is going to implode or explode. Uh, is what he's writing about. And I was going, okay, I can relate to that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I truly can relate to that. Setting it then present day on a Gullah Island, all black folk makes sense uh, in, in that. Uh, the parallel universe is, is very strong here. Uh, and what I'm doing with the play is the same thing that Chekhov did. Chekhov sampled Hamlet a lot, uh, someone outside of his culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I'm doing is sampling Chekhov and Hamlet and uh, a lot of other sources, mixes, uh, uh, the same way that uh, uh, artists throughout uh, the centuries have sampled each other, whether that's uh, uh, Picasso and Matisse, whether that's uh, with um, uh, uh, a jazz musician who takes a standard and riffs on the melody uh, is what we're doing here. Can you talk about what the evolution of the actual production has been? When was the first production, or how did you get to that first production, and how is it that it's arrived here at Manhattan Theatre Club? Uh, it was first done at the Goodman Theatre a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I'm an associate artist with them and do projects with them every year and a half, two years, something like that. 
And uh, I present this as a possibility, as, as something I'd like to explore. Mm -hmm. So we did it there, and two years later, it's now on Broadway. That's great. Let's go to you, Paul. Uh, talk a little bit about Valhalla and um, what your experiences have been in terms of it coming to New York. Well, I actually, I did have an earlier workshop, but it was in New York, and I, which I was very grateful for. About two years ago, we did a production at Juilliard, which thanks to Michael Kahn there, he allowed us to use actors from the fourth year acting class. And we had six weeks of rehearsal and a full production with sets, costumes, lights, and even more importantly, almost an audience. We were given about 14 performances. So it was protected from, from critics and that kind of outside eye, but it was a full production experience, which was invaluable. Because Valhalla is a very, is a complicated structure. It combines a story of Mad Ludwig of Bavaria, an actual king from the 1800s with a fictional tale of a kid from Texas in the 1930s. And these stories eventually intertwine, and that's what I wanted to appear as graceful as possible. And that's why that earlier production was, was very, very helpful. And in fact, one of the actresses, a wonderful woman named Samantha Soul, who had been at Juilliard, is now in the current production because she graduated and she's been working nonstop and we were lucky to be able to get her back. So after that Juilliard production, we did do then a uh, kind of two-week workshop at the New York Theatre Workshop, which was also very helpful. I think there is, as Terence was saying, there is an enormous amount of protocol in the theatre today in which everyone kind of needs to feel very included in the process, which can be, you know, very helpful, and I understand that emotional need, but it is, it can make for a long haul. But I worked at the, at the workshop before, so I felt very welcome there. I'd done a play called The Most Fabulous Story. So by the, now that Valhalla is actually up and, up and running, it's been an absolutely terrific experience. I've worked with Chris Ashley, who's the director I've had on, on my past five plays, so there's a real sense of old home week there. Um, and I think, I guess one thing that I realized, I, right before Valhalla went into rehearsal for this final, for its real production, I had just come off a big movie, off The Stepford Wives, which is a big Hollywood production with, with big stars and tons of money, and it was very exciting. But I have never been so grateful to get back into a small room with six actors <laughs> and one director because you just feel so much more control on the most basic level and that you could get your hands dirty in a way that a movie is such an enormous undertaking and there's so much financial risk involved and there are studios and there's everyone and it's all quite understandable when, when, the, when, that, when you're dealing with that kind of money and those kind of names. But it's the writer can get very kind of buried and very frantic in those situations. Actually, I was, I was lucky. I was even on the film, I was working with a director I'd worked with before who was very respectful, and I was on the set every day. But there was still that sense of it was like standing in the middle of a freeway with trucks coming at you every <laughs> second. And so when you're in the theater, you feel it, that the emotional stakes are, in a way, much, much higher. And because everyone's just passionate about being there, but the other stakes, the other burdens that are placed on, on the work itself are, are lessened to a certain degree. It's a play, and, everyone, and you're not going to make a huge amount of money from a play, no matter what you do, so that everyone really wants to be there for the best reasons. Mm. So it was a wonderful transition. Fabulous. So, Julia, you find, at least in this profession, I find it's either feast or famine, and you are sitting at a mighty feast of four productions in New York. Yeah. Uh, talk about that and, and you know, how that's come to be. Um, well, I, 
It was famine for a long, long time there. <laughs> um, two of the plays that were produced this year I wrote seven and eight years ago yeah. at school, um, at Juilliard, actually. And, um, and they just sat there, and they got lost in the workshopping. I mean, they were workshopped all over the country, and lots of dramaturgs and lots of talkbacks with audiences. And um, I always had Marsha Norman in my ear, though, saying, stop writing after two years. Don't touch it. You're a different person. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was, it was really hard. And it was also incredibly hard because, um, especially Tatjana was given awards and it was published, and I couldn't quite understand how that could be if it couldn't get produced. If it wasn't worthy of a production, why was it worthy of these other things? So um, I went through a really hard time where I stopped writing for three years, and I just felt like, what's the point? Really? I mean, why? I should write a novel. I should write something, but not a play. Yeah. Um, and then my friend David Auburn, who wrote Proof, and who I was at school with, came over and um, basically told me, you know, you, first of all, you have to get over the writer's block. So you got to do something for that. And he said, switch the gender right from a male character's point of view, which I did. And I guess, interestingly enough, it's my most personal play. I just sort of made myself male, I guess. But, um, <laughs> um, and he said, but, you know, on top of that, if you write this play, it ha will have a better chance of getting produced. And it's called Boy, and it was just the response was completely different. I mean, I think I am a much better writer, and people did know me already, so um, that helped. But um, yeah, I've, so it was all very strange. It all kind of happened at the same time, but great. It's been great. Mm. Fantastic. Milo, how about you? You have an interesting journey with uh, your, your production on Broadway. But that's not my newest play. I'm working no, on it. <laughs> you want to talk about Anna? You want to talk about the newest? Well, um, both. Well, I actually want to talk about, um, because Regina says something that um, is very curious, because um, Regina was working with, with Chekhov, and I'm working with Lorca in my new play. Um, I was in Spain doing research on a, on a play that had to do with, with Lorca's death. You know, he was killed during the Civil War. And I wrote a play called Lorca in a Green Dress. And, um, but when I was in Spain, I felt that I was not finished with him, that I, f I felt like I had still... I had to explore more his life and, and certainly his death. So this new play of mine, which is called Beauty of the Father, is, um, it takes place in the centennial, 1998, and uh, centennial of Lorca. And um, so it's as if Lorca was coming back to, to life uh, as a ghost, and, but he's also dictating the, the action of the play. And uh, the play is very much about impossible love. Uh, something that um, was very present in his life when, when he was alive. Um, he um, just wasn't able to obtain love. <laughs> and uh, so and that's something that I'm exploring in my, in my script. Um, but uh, I just uh, did a production in, 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 in Florida at the same theater that did Anna, that premiered Anna in the Tropics. And um, uh, I've been writing this play for almost um, two years now. Um, I actually was writing at the same time that I was writing uh, Anna in the Tropics. And, um, but for some reason, um, I was also getting notes from uh, a few direct, um, uh, dramaturgs and, um, and also from, from actors. And at one point, the play started to uh, escape me in some ways. So after seeing the production in Florida, 
which I had some concerns with, and um, um, so I went back to the drawing board, uh, actually, and uh, took a lot of things out that I felt were uh, going away from the story that I'd, uh, the play wanted to tell. Uh, and I just did a reading, as a matter of fact, last week at New York Theatre Work, uh, sorry, at Manhattan Theatre Club, and I was just so happy that I was able to get my hands on the play again. Uh, there were nights that I would just go to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake up at 4 and do rewrites, and uh, so it was like a fever just to get back in there and see what this play was really about. And uh, so I did a, a reading, and, and I feel like my play is back, and uh, thank God. <laughs> So that's what I've been working on. And uh, in terms of Anna in the Tropics, um, wow, I just, just, everything's a surprise for me. I never knew that that little play that started a little theater in Miami, New Theater, yeah. was going to get a Pulitzer Prize. I never imagined that I was going to be on Broadway. And uh, it's been a whirlwind for me this, this last year uh, in terms of doing these kind of things with uh, panel discussions or interviews. And uh, it's quite overwhelming sometimes because uh, it keeps me from 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 writing and uh, I have two new plays circling me and uh, but I think a lot of people want to place a face with the name and who's this guy who, who got the Pulitzer Prizes here so and I so I feel like I have to do this at this moment in time but I can't wait to get back to the simple life you know of being a writer that's what I love and that's what I enjoy the most is when I'm immersed in the writing process it's a it's a wide range of experiences um, you know, I was up at the O'Neill, I ran the O'Neill Playwrights Conference for the last four years. And to your point, Terence, about dramaturgs, I, I entered into that process, which by the, o by the way, the O'Neill claims is having brought the dramaturg to America, um, which I'm not so sure is a good thing. Um, however, uh, and when you trace back sort of the formal role that it's sort of evolved into over the last 25 years, uh, it does seem to trace back to the O'Neill inviting uh, dramaturgs to come in. The notion but, of Eugene O'Neill and a dramaturg is mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they would have just had a heart attack and, in one of his scripts. And my <laughs> thought is, is uh, w which I was very curious about uh, the role of the dramaturg, um, because of course I, I've worked with many writers and one of the first things you hear is exactly how this discussion started off, was mm -hmm. just real concern about yet another collaborator in the process that's actually quite intimate. Mm -hmm. It's a process of being extremely intimate, even within the individual, from a subconscious sort of instinctual thing that moves into a conscious state that ultimately gets shared with a group of people around a table, then ultimately with, uh, with an audience. Um, yet to add an, another person uh, in that mix seemed to be contradictory to uh, being effective for the process to move along. However, um, when I was up at the O'Neill, every year we'd have, you know, 15 to 20 writers there. And uh, the first year I said, so let's throw this discussion about the dramaturg on the table. We'd have these private meetings um, every week. And, you know, the minute I did that, it became a, you know, a very long, <coughs> heated discussion. Um, and by the end of the discussion, I was trying to look for guidance from the writers. Do we have dramaturgs at, at this particular place or not? And it was a split. And then the following year, I thought, forget the conversation. I'm just going to see a show of hands. Who, if you had a choice, who would have a dramaturg and who would not? And it was about a split. Mm -hmm. And it was very fascinating to me. So I ultimately uh, kept the dramaturg there and tried to find very sensitive, sensible people uh, for those roles and really tried to talk about 
the writer taking the lead, the writer really leading the process, and the writer dictating what they need, and that each writer had um, the right to define that for themselves, and that no two writers, as in, no two individuals, necessarily approach work or themselves in, in the same way. But to throw this on the table a little bit, um, you know, we've talked about your experience of being commissioned, and you've got, you know, four plays that are going on, and you've had a relationship with this theater, and you've all had relationships with theater, and ultimately, I think that's what the theater, you know, boils down to. You talked about relationships, Terrence, where, you know, who are those first few people you send your play to? Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a dramaturg. Those are my dramaturgs. Exactly. A good you director, know. good actor is a dramaturg. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a relationship. And they're not strangers to me. You know, a Nathan Lane or a Zoe Caldwell, actors I've worked with right. repeatedly, or Joe Mantello or Frank Galati. These are wonderful. They do their job well, which makes them dramaturgs, but they don't tell you how to write it or... They're so, also yeah. the practical experience, which right. is what you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who says, I don't know how to stage this, or that's not funny, or I can't play this, or hopefully I can. And that's really useful, as opposed to a more academic response to something. Mm -hmm. Right. I think we've gotten to a point where we're so in our heads that we've lost touch with the visceral mm -hmm. experience of, you know, you had that experience up at Juilliard where you got to experience your play and sit in an audience and sit in a room with actors and and a director and experience it versus coming at it with questions or, you know, stuff that you're going to do naturally anyway. But I find often that the environment out there is one that writers are not entrusted with, with, uh, uh, with the assumption that they actually have a handle on what they're doing and a handle on a process. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think We've created so many circumstances in the, in the country where these plays are workshopped in week-long environments where a writer's the outsider to that environment, generally speaking, um, where you're invited to a, a theater to workshop your play and it's a resident director, resident audience, resident artistic director, and all this input is coming in. And in fact, what you were saying, Nilo, where you begin, if you get enough of those, those, those bits of information and input begin to remove you from your instinct, instinctive sort of gut that, that really helps give birth to, to work. They also, my experience has been that when you have a workshop that goes in front of an audience, because I had that with Tatiana um, at Actor Studio Free Theater, which was great, because it, if you workshop something and then you have the audience, to me that's the ultimate dramaturg. And, our, when you look at the audience and they're fidgeting or they're not laughing, when you, that's when you know, okay, I have to look at this piece. But it seems like dramaturgs sort of insert themselves in before we get a chance to have that ultimate thing. They come in with suggestions on day one before the actors find things, before we get a chance to, before the audience has a chance to respond. It just seems to me like um, maybe after we see the audience mm -hmm. after we've worked with the actors when we like it's clear this space right here this part of the play I have some questions I would like to ask you then that would be more appropriate because mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I agree with, <coughs> with Julia I also think that uh, <coughs> plays the written word on the page is not really the play the really play comes to life the canvas comes to life is when you actually see it on a space with, a, with an audience. So sometimes we're getting um, kind of responses, and it's too early in time to be getting these responses when you're just seeing the play, 
being read out loud. Um, I think that in the theater, we tell um, uh, um, a play, as the story of the play is, is, is told in many different ways, not just with the actual script. We have to remember that, that, that uh, a play takes place in, uh, in, in three dimensions now, and in this kind of, uh, so the visual aspects of it are also very important. The designers also tell a story mm -hmm. uh, through their design. The costume designer also tells a story. And these, are, these are all things that factor in, in the development of, of, of the play and, and uh, some of the play coming to life. And um, so I think for me, ultimately, is, is about the production. I learn from the production, and then I go back to the script, and I, certainly from the audience too, and then I go back and I do rewrites, uh, if I need to do rewrites, or if not, it's, wh it's what it is. I also think that <clears throat> plays, like all works of art, needs to have they need to have mystery, and there's some things that cannot be told, and, and I think art, to begin with, is a, all, all art is, is a, a fragmentation, you know, we, uh, and, it's, and it's an abstraction, it is you abstract something from something else, and you kind of put it in a, in, in a canvas, and uh, so you should not be defined. I love to go to the museum and look at paintings, and especially the, the modern uh, painters, where sometimes they might have a face in the back where it's not really defined, and, uh, and exactly it should be in a place. Sometimes I get notes from dramaturgs that tell me, oh, you should really explore this character's life a lot more. I said, no, this character is what it is, and that's it. Um, <laughs> so it's just like that painting, that, uh, that face in that painting where it's just uh, a little uh, shady and it's just not as defined as the, other, as the others. So, yeah. anyhow, it's sort of like a labyrinth sometimes when it comes to this uh, question of, uh, of, of dramaturgs. Uh. I don't like bad dramaturgs. Uh, I like good dramaturgs. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, dramaturgs add clarity, uh, the voice of clarity, uh, another I. Uh, as you're in the creative process, you know, it is about just putting it out, seeing what it is, discovering it uh, as you go along in the process. Uh, a good dramaturg uh, will ask you questions. Uh, uh, what are you trying to do in the scene? And you voice what I'm trying to do in the scene. And in hearing that, you go, oh, that's not what's happening here. Uh, that's a good dramaturg. Uh, I find them very valuable when they're very good. Yeah. I like, I think the, right. oh, I'm sorry. like the idea you had of that the, the individual playwrights could define their dramaturg's mm -hmm. responsibilities, because then uh, if they could run errands mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 or clean your apartment, Coffee. they were a kind of personal shopper. So I did have a director who dealt beautifully and, and gracefully with a dramaturg who was over-eager, which I think is also because I think dramaturgs are often trained in drama schools and for a profession which is, is incredibly marginal. And so they really feel, okay, I'm going to, they'll give endless notes. And this director would appear very grateful and he would say thank you and he would fold up these multiple pages and put them in his pocket and never look at them again. Mm. And it would kind of, and the dramaturg never seemed to quite notice this. I think she felt it was somehow being integrated into the work, but it was a way of, I guess he was just being non-confrontational about it. I think dramaturgs are often over-educated, and I think you get good in the theater by experience. Yeah. So in a sense, you really don't have to go to college to work. No one has ever asked me if I even went to college, let alone what degree I have. But someone's applying to get the job as receptionist at Manhattan Theater Club, and she has to present a, you know, curricula vitae, and you know, what has she done? Did she graduate? 
But no one ever asks an actor or playwright, where did you go to school? You have a BA, MA. You get it through experience. And I think the questions you expect a dramaturg to ask, I expect my director to ask. I also think producers are... I want a producer who says, you know who's the set designer for this play or the director for this play? Because sometimes we get in a little box. Sure. I sometimes think we don't have enough real producers out there. And I don't mean the raising the money part of producing, right. which I, I don't understand. It must be odious beyond description. But someone who really knows the right designer and director or have a casting idea for a play of yours. You know, you know if he played that part and she did that. I think that's all important. Yeah. But I think uh, theater is based on experience. And I think all of us have learned the most in previews and rehearsals and and I think what you said about a playwright taking responsibility for their script is very important. Um, I think a real sign of a beginner is to blame the actors and the director and the set designer and I think most of us now have learned you got to go home the first day if a scene isn't playing at the first cold reading it's your, it's your fault. <laughs> go home and work on it. Don't wait to the first preview and uh, but there's so you know the pool of talent in this city is still bigger there. And I always say to young people, just join a young theater company, you know. Watch them grow. When I started working with Manhattan Theater Club, they were really small potatoes. Now they're producing Regina's play on Broadway and yeah. I, I don't know how many million dollar theater. You know, we used to do the plays up at a Polish social hall on 74th Street. And that's where you, a young person should get involved with the, his peers, her peers. Uh, one of the wonderful young companies off, off Broadway and learn together this terribly difficult business of putting a play on. Yeah. I, I think we lose sight of the importance of those relationships that are, you know, spawned in those kind of environments. And I think all of us and all of the experiences we have or wherever we are right now in, in our particular field, you know, we can, we can look back and sort of bullet back to those relationships that were formed in those small environments and you're working for free or you're throwing a little money into the till to try to make it happen and make your own work happen. Um, you know, we want to so shortcut it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want that. Mm -hmm. we, we want to identify that thing and we want it right now. I've read scripts by young writers. They're fairly, you know, you say, this is a good script. And they say, well, I only want it done on Broadway, and I want Pacino and De Niro and nobody else. And you say, get real. It's not yeah. going to happen that yeah. way. You should be happy if the Flea Theater wants to do it. Right. And, and the, the Mint. And be proud they want to do it. Not, I don't mean be happy, but that's how it works. Absolutely. Look and at Dilo's play began in a small yeah, theater. Exactly. Masterclass began in Big Fork, Montana. Did you ever hear of Big Fork, Montana? I didn't. No such a town of 400 people existed. Yeah. And that's where we want to start, give that play life. And, and, and that all comes from these relationships yeah. that are formed. And, you know, getting back just to the dramaturg situation for one second, so that I don't want to appear to those out there who work very hard and who are good at what they do. You know, it depends how we define a dramaturg. You know, I think sometimes we point attack on a dramaturg as, as the person who's got their MFA from whatever program and now they're a dramaturg. To me, a dramaturg is defined by those relationships, you know, that are important to you. And I, I'm sure each of you could cite people in your lives that you oh, yeah, would yeah, say yeah. are invaluable to the, to the evolution of your work and a real sounding board for you. And if that's how we define a dramaturg, then I think... Uh, there's room for that uh, relationship. It's, I think, the sort of institutionalization of it that, that um, has cast a very negative shadow on that role. Um, but back to um, the relationships that are important to all of us. You know, 
Paul, you've, you've talked about having your re relationship with, uh, with New York Theatre Workshop. Um, you've had relationships with directors, I know, that mm -hmm. are evolving, even now. Mm -hmm. um, you've worked with several. And Nilo, you've talked about your relationship with the new theatre down in Miami and so on, and, and um, Manhattan Theatre Club, obviously, and also with uh, the Goodman Theatre. Um, talk about the importance of those relationships and, and what they've meant to you. Well, I've had a, a mini, multi-year relationship with Christopher Ashley, with the director who I treasure beyond all words, because I think finding a direct, finding a great director, finding your director is like finding an ideal parent or a perfect therapist. It's the person who you can most importantly, in a way, fail in front of. Because I think this actually speaks to what the whole, what we've been talking about, that you're at such an immensely vulnerable point when you are going into production, when you're working on a play that... You want to have someone you trust absolutely, someone who will tell you that stinks or that's funny or go in that direction and who you can just go to that way and not worry about the opinion of the world quite yet. So that's why with Chris, I just, I, I hope I don't ever take him for granted because every time I have a new play, that's where it goes first. Um, and then beyond that, it's wonderful to have theaters that at least, where they at least, you know, know your name, where they'll say, sure, you know, show us whatever you're working on. But it's funny, I was thinking back to um, when a play I wrote, Jeffrey, about 10 years ago, was a play that was turned down by every theater on the planet for various reasons. It was a <laughs> comedy dealing with AIDS, and it was very gay, and it was, had so many things working against it. And I would even, along with the turndown, sometimes there'd be wonderful letters saying, from the literary manager saying, oh, I love this, we'll never do this, or our audience will never stand for this. And at the time, I had a wonderful agent, a woman named Helen Merrill, who was sort of legendary. She, she died a few years back. She was a, a grand German woman who had been in this country for about 50 years and become more German with every moment. <laughs> <laughs> and she finally took the play and marched it over to the WPA Theater, which no longer exists. It was run by a terrific man named Kyle Rennick and said she was not leaving until he agreed to do the play. And luckily, he agreed pretty fast. So it was that. But the mere fact that there weren't so many levels of hierarchy and, and a board and, you know, literary team, that he actually could just say, read it and say yes. And then suddenly we were, we were underway was so thrilling. And I was so grateful. And it was, um, I did other plays there. And it was still, oh, my God, you felt also so protected and so treasured in the, in the nicest possible ways. So it was, uh, and I feel that way about the New York Theatre Workshop as well. It's also, it's particularly dicey when you're dealing with comedy because that's so subjective. And what I do love is watching that sometimes a lot of these not-for-profit theaters, which are very dedicated to doing difficult work and challenging work, that if you do a comedy, it turns everyone into a big laugh whore. <laughs> you know, that suddenly <laughs> the people who are used to writing grants all day long and speaking, you know, at graduate programs are suddenly saying, you know, that's not landing. You know, where the audience wasn't going for that. Or, God, shouldn't you have a better button at the end of that scene? And you suddenly feel everyone's turned into, you know, David Merrick. Yeah. And that's, uh, but that's fun because suddenly you realize, oh, okay, we're all in the theater now. You know, this is no longer, um, you know, a, a, a dedicated intellectual forum. So, um, so yeah, so I, I love having those people around me. How about you, Joanne? Um, relationships. Yeah, I mean, um, what's, what's evolved for you that's meaningful? Well, uh, I've worked with, with this director, Joe Clarko. This will be our third time working together, and I just feel like I'm going to hold on to him for life because he, uh, 
we have that sort of perfect relationship where I can be really, really bad. I can write really, really bad stuff, and he has no qualms about telling me. And we're both screamers, and we don't <laughs> hold it against each other. It's just perfect. So, um, and he's he's he did two children's shows for me, and both times um, we were casting very young actors who didn't have a lot of experience and just sitting in the audition process with him and watching sometimes actors will come in and I'd be like they can't, they're not good enough and he'd be like no they are trust me and he was right twice he delivered two great casts great performances and so I just I just believe in him and then my other really important one is and I've, you know I've also worked with Will Pomerantz who's amazing yeah. and um, but Primary Stages has been really good to me. I was in their writer's group, and I wrote my play Boy in the group, and I had never been produced um, here at the time. And they were interested from the beginning and so supportive. And when um, South Coast Rep, who commissioned the play, let it go, when they passed on it, they just stepped up and said, we'll, we'll do it. And they've been, they've just stuck by me ever since, so it's been good. Excellent. How about you, well, um, I love working at this little theater in Miami because I'm pretty much left on my own. There's not a dramaturg there, although I have a really wonderful relationship with a dramaturg that I want to talk about. Um, so there, uh, actually, when uh, they, this theater, uh, new theater, had um, commissioned me to write on in the tropics, and um, and I was there in residency through a, a, a theater um, TCG grant and. Uh, they had announced the play before I finished writing it. It was pretty remarkable. <laughs> but it was really great because it gave me the impetus to, to go in there and, and write the play. I basically wrote it in, in I think, less than six months. And, uh, I mean, of course, that first draft was full of mistakes. And <laughs> to go back, <laughs> terrified of showing it to the artistic director. Um, but between the first draft and by the time we got into, into rehearsal, um, I was able to refine the play. and. Um, uh, so it was really wonderful because I got to see the play up and see where the play was at, and then I went back and rewrote the play, and that's the play that I sent to to. I, and I found out that I was nominated for a Pulitzer. I couldn't believe it. So I did. I had done some rewriting and sent it to to the Pulitzer people. And then I got the Pulitzer, and I had and I did more rewrites on the play after that. You would think I would just leave it. I was a little bit afraid because I thought they were going to knock on my door and say, "Hey, that's not the play that we're giving you a board for." <laughs> but um, but I do have a wonderful relationship with. Uh, um, a dramaturg at the McCarter Theatre, Janice Perrin, and I actually dedicated uh, the play Anna in the Tropics to her because she did help me a lot in, um, in doing some rewriting uh, on that play. And uh, what's really wonderful with her is that I can really dialogue with her in where I'm at and I could bounce off ideas uh, from her. And um, so one of the things that I like about um, Working and the McCarter is a theater that I like. I love to work in because um, I find that I need readings. Uh, I I'm not just the, the writer who just writes a play and it's okay, it's fine. I I, he, I need to hear it because I find that writing for the stage um, that it has to be musical. The, the the writing must be rhythmic and uh, so by hearing the play, I could see where my rhythms are in certain scenes and. Um, which is also a problem in, in terms of rewriting, is, is if, if you start getting a lot of uh, notes from people uh, and you start, um, I think rewriting is such a delicate thing because you start putting information into the play, it does interfere with your rhythm sometimes. Um, so it's a tricky kind of um, uh, uh, balance here. Uh, I know I'm, I'm going all over the no, place, no, no, no. but more than anything, um, 
again, working with the McCarter, um, it's been really lovely for me because, again, I could see where I'm at in the development of my play through a series of readings that they provide for me. And, uh, uh, and I've had like three uh, plays done there. Um, so. Excellent. Regina? Yeah, I was thinking of Janice as well. Uh, she is one of the best dramaturgs in this country, I think. Uh, she's someone I can talk to and, and trust, and uh, I know she'll just like, you know, give it to me straight. Um, with the Goodman Theater, uh, I've worked with them for several years, and it is a place um, that was very valuable to me in terms of a place where I could feel I can fail. Uh, and I think that's really important, mm. to be able to feel comfortable enough to fail, <laughs> to, to say, okay, I'm going to, to take a risk here. And, and they take that risk with me uh, and support me in that. <laughs> uh, and uh, then you go somewhere unexpected with your writing. That's mm. very important to find a place um, that you can do that. Um, I think a lot of theaters play it safe. Uh, they want that show that's going to be a hit, that's going to sell out. Uh, and I think particularly also with myself, um, if you're in a big institution, um, audience is in uh, the, the back of, of people's heads when they think of choosing plays, uh, when they choose black plays, uh, who's going to come see it? Maybe they're trying to develop their audience, uh, so they want to open it up and, and, and bring black people in. But uh, then uh, sometimes I, I find that uh, some theaters want you to uh, shape your work for their audience that becomes a, a huge problem then because you know you can't work you can't work like that you can't work like that at all so uh, to find a place where you feel like you can be true to your own voice um, and be able to take some risks uh, that's very important mm. um, I think um, the notion of failing uh, that the theater provides the playwright and the theater artists who work there the opportunity to fail is, is very, very important if we're going to have art in theater. Mm -hmm. I think it's equally important that when the artist fails, they still embrace him. Yes. And I think a lot of us has, have felt when we have failed, we're no longer quite as welcome at the theater, which is very disappointing. Uh, I, you know, the Globe produced all of Shakespeare's plays. He didn't go. He didn't have Pericles or Timon of Athens. And they said, oh, we'll go away for a while till you hit your stride again. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly they got The Tempest and Winter's Tale because they suffered through the, the plays that I don't think are maybe as great as some of the others. And theaters don't always do that. You know, they say, we, you're here to fail, you know, then you fail. And they're like, well, you failed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think really supporting again. an artist is... I think it's a tragedy that there was no one there for Tennessee Williams in the last years of his life, or Eugene O'Neill, though Eugene O'Neill did write some pretty great plays no matter how badly he was treated by. I went to Columbia and you couldn't even, drama stopped with, uh, oh God, Thornton Wilder or somebody, but O'Neill they wouldn't even mention. And now the play of his was in print when he died. It's, I didn't yeah. know that. I was yeah. shocked when I wanted to know more about this guy called O'Neill. All those plays were out of print and terrible failures he had with his last 
two plays, and it's such a responsibility these institutions have to the artists to let them fail and mean it, and not just say it. And uh, it's very tricky now, and I think what you said, as our institutions get bigger, they get more conservative, and they're so worried about broadening their subscriber base, and I don't think any of us particularly right for the subscriber base, people who know two years in advance, oh, I want to see that play May 11th, 2006. I don't know people like that. Most of my friends make a decision that night practically to go see a play. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's a more conservative audience you're writing for, and, they, and you become hostage. You know, we've got 10 million subscribers, and next year we want 12 million. Well, I don't think that's how art happens. And finally, you have to talk about art when you talk about theater, or it's just, okay. just commerce. And it's very hard to run a theater now. I, I, you, you have your own, and I, uh, I know it's difficult, but it's a very fine line. But I think the most important thing, if we are to have artists in the theater that they really feel supported, especially when they fail, to you know, write a big hit play, and they say, we love you, we love you, bring us your next play. It's when you have a really big flop, and they say, we're going to do your next play. Yeah. That it matters to us. Yeah. End of speech. Well, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, frankly, I founded a theater based on that. And that's you know, terrific what, you, what Signature does. I don't know if this, this well, audience it, knows your mandate, but well, it's wonderful. It, it, it was founded out of those impulses of, one, um, feeling that the writing community was being discarded just one at a time through the hit and miss ethic that was prevalent and still is, you know, where, you know, you're, you're only as good as your last play and, and maybe your last two. Maybe you're given one extra shot. Um, and I found that uh, not only that was the uh, pretty hostile environment for writers, and I still think is relatively hostile, um, but, but also that uh, they were just being lost and forgotten. You know, I think Tennessee Williams is a perfect example of somebody who deteriorated Partly because there was nobody out there embracing mm -hmm. him and his work. You know, it's really shocking. The last play of Tennessee Williams, I forget the exact name of it, do you know, any of you know? It closed, it was supposed to close on a Saturday night after like a week. Yeah. And I said, I've got to see this. So I drove from the end of Long Island on a Thursday and it had closed the day midweek, which is unheard of. And there yeah. was a note for refunds, call the producer. And it was like, you know, apartment 12D on, you know, they, they didn't have an office. Yeah. And the phone number, personal number, call this guy for a refund. And this is Tennessee Williams being produced out of somebody's apartment. Yeah. It was terrible. And there yeah. was no one there for him. And how can we let this happen to our artists? Well, I also think we start thinking backward. You know, all good art evolves. And, and I totally agree with you that... that, that it, there is a sort of general sort of outside notion of how to approach uh, product in the theater. You know, they approach it from, not that there's this universal they we always say, but there's, you know, we have to take responsibility as artists to listen to those voices that are within us, to surround us by the, the people who um, are those people that we trust and encourage us and vice versa, and take responsibility for our role in it as well. I, Again, pointing to some discussions I had up at the O'Neill, we'd have these roundtable discussions. I cut, they used to have uh, critiques after every reading, where the whole community would gather and talk about the work. And they went something like this, the first five minutes where I loved it, <coughs> you're great. And the, second, the next five was, 
you know, I didn't quite understand. And then the third was, and final segment was, and here's how you fix it. You know, there was this whole sense of mm -hmm. stripping it down while it's mm -hmm. still in its incubator and in infancy. Mm -hmm. You know, pulling judgment out on something that really uh, there's no business for. Um, and I find it interesting that I think it's because we're dealing with the written word that most people feel they have some authority because they write letters and they use language every day in their mm -hmm. lives. I, th I don't think it's something that's even conscious. I think it's just assumed in some level that, you know, we would never imagine telling uh, a sculptor, you know, standing behind the sculptor and as they're working and presenting something to us that I don't quite understand that that's a shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, but absolutely. but we allow. There's a process that's allowed uh, that that sculptor picks a slab based on you know the idea, mm -hmm. the amount of clay, cuts away and starts touching it. And it's almost the minute they start touching the thing, it's a process of the the art informing the artist, yeah. and ultimately the art wins out if we're, we're if we're really listening. You know, but I don't think we afford our writers uh, that opportunity. And when we do, when there are those relationships, as you've all described, whether it's with a director or a theater or whatever it might be, a dramaturg in your case, you know, uh, then the work begins to thrive. The art begins to be born. And when you find those adventuresome producers out there, and there are some out there. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think it's very dangerous, this whole concept of understanding. I remember when I saw um, a Tarkovsky film, uh, The uh, Sacrifice, I didn't understand anything, but I loved it. And I went back to the theater three times, and still I didn't understand it, but I loved it. There was something, there was a certain kind of, I felt connected to what he was doing. I felt a, an emotional connection. The same thing happened to me when I saw Pasolini's film, Salo. I was very young when I saw it. I was in my 20s. It was a very dark film. And I tell you, I went back in my 30s and saw the film again. I thought, my God, this is a master. It's a very, very dark film. But I thought, this is a masterpiece. The way he's told the story in a, in a very elegant way. This really dark story about uh, sadomasochism. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and the times of, uh, of um, fascism in, in Italy. And, uh, but I was not ready for it then. And just to say, well, I don't understand it. Well, maybe it's me that doesn't understand it, but, but the work of art has a certain kind of wisdom and knowledge, and it should be what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, we did a season of a wonderful writer named Adrian Kennedy, who I'm sure you all know. Oh, yeah. Of course. An extraordinary writer. And I remember I had never seen anything of Adrian's. Mm -hmm. And I had known the Owl Answers, and I started reading more of her work as, as we were considering a season. And I started reading it, and uh, in several instances, I found myself in a situation where I, I wasn't following it, but by the end of the experience, I was deeply moved by it. Mm -hmm. And I just loved that contradiction. Completely. You know, it was completely taken away by, by something that was just greater than, than, than I could grab onto in that moment. And to see that work, again, speaking to the point about the work being heard and experienced in a three-dimensional way, the first time we put that work on its feet was extraordinary mm -hmm. to hear that language come alive. Well, I'm drawing the Chekhov and Shakespeare over and over, and I, Hamlet I probably have memorized, but to say I understand Hamlet would be an absurd right. statement, or I understand the seagull. How can you understand these plays and all their complexity? They just draw us to them because they're so resonant. Yes. And, you know, you understand a polemic play with a, you know, bang point to it. And, yeah. uh, but real art, I think, is much more mysterious and timeless. And 
And thrilling. And, thr and thrilling, <laughs> and, yeah. But it's easy for a writer like Adrian Kennedy to be dismissed as too difficult. Or, Absolutely. You know, but those plays, you never forget having seen one of her plays. Yeah. I remember when they were brand new in the 60s, the world premiere of The Owl Answers. Yeah. And it was just remarkable. I mean, how can you forget having seen that play? But to say I understand it, you're not supposed to understand no. it, I don't think, Adrian. No. Say, oh, here's what it means in one sentence. But yeah. And then we get back to the dramaturg issue, people trying to maybe make a play mean something. Yes. Right. What does Long Day's Journey mean? Yes. It's a great experience to sit there, to me, for those three and a half, four oh hours with that family. Yeah. Well, I think another problem is that they want it to mean something that they personally understand mm -hmm. in their terms. And so it becomes, that's another thing with the talkbacks and the workshops and everything, is when everybody starts weighing in, you, le you lose, if you're trying to draw a specific character, specific circumstances, it seems to me that the more, the more perfectly it's drawn or the more specifically it's drawn, the more the human, humanity, the common humanity becomes apparent. It's when you have too many people sort of rounding out all the edges, all of a sudden it doesn't really feel human anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to come back in a minute. Um, and when we come back, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about what I find very compelling is this notion of fear that drives all of us um, in our art and uh, in our choices every day. And then what's our role and responsibility uh, in the art itself? What, where do we stand and take responsibility for the trends that happen and all the things we've talked about that are upsetting us? Where do we stand in that? And how, how do we participate in perpetuating circumstances that are not always uh, helping the art? We'll be back in a few minutes uh, after hearing from the American Theatre Wing. Thanks. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. This seminar, part of our ongoing series on CUNY TV, is only one way in which the Wing works to enhance the understanding of theatre for students, for aspiring professionals, and for the general audience. As a not-for-profit organization with its roots going back almost 90 years, the Wing has long stood for education and excellence in theatre. Our other programs include a video guide to careers in theatre, available, as are many of these seminars, on our website, americantheaterwing.org. Our grant program, which provides funding to 50 of New York's institutional theatre companies, and perhaps our best-known venture, the Antoinette Perry Tony Awards, created by the Wing in 1947 and now recognized as the pinnacle of achievement in Broadway theatre. We're very proud of the work we do, and we're continually exploring ways in which the Wing can better serve and sustain the vitality of theatre. And we're grateful for the support of our donors and members who make our work possible. And now, back to our discussion. And we're back. We're going to continue our discussion with our panel of playwrights. Uh, just before uh, the break, we were talking or introduced the idea of talking about fear and our responsibility within the field to to deal with some of these uh, issues that are confronting uh, both our writers and the field at large. So I'd like to open up with talking about the fear sort of quotient a bit. Um, I think what's been fascinating to me uh, and, and rather consistent with every artist I've ever worked with and every writer in particular is that fear uh, within all of us uh, is a real motivator. It, uh, it, it drives us, it feeds the art, and I mean I'm talking about the healthy kind of fear, the stuff you're 
just afraid of delving into um, or confronting or you're surprised. You talked earlier, Regina, about uh, surprising yourself in your writing and how exhilarating that is. And part of that, I think, comes out of confronting a fear within us. When we were doing the Arthur Miller season, I remember uh, at our, the opening of a brand new play of his, uh, we were sitting out in the lobby as the audience was um, taking the play in. And he was just sitting out there sort of confounded and said, you know, where do these people come from? Well, why are they here? You know? And mm. part of that was speaking to a, just a part of himself that was afraid of, of um, what, what he might confront uh, through that process. And I found it extremely liberating. So I'd just love for us to talk about that a little bit. Why don't we start with you again, Paul? Well, I used to have, I still do have this fear when I'm very early in the playwriting process, that when I do a first draft, that I used to think, oh my God, every line should be perfect before you continue on to the next perfect line. And <laughs> so when I realized that would mean I would write one play every 3,000 years, so I would just sort of spew out a first draft, just get it on the page, just get it over with. And then I would have this terror that I would be killed that night in a car accident. And people would find this first draft and imagine that I thought it was good. <laughs> then it finally occurred to me, if that should happen, I would be dead, so why am I worried? <laughs> so that it was that, you know, that, that sort of fear of, of something less than perfection. And then I met uh, another playwright who was actually quite, not, not really a very good playwright, but one of the most confident human beings I've ever met. <laughs> and she was so sure of her own genius that at the end of each day of writing, she would put the pages she'd worked on in the freezer. So in case her apartment caught on fire, yeah. they would be saved. <laughs> or at least chilled. Wow. <laughs> I thought, I wished I had that sort of regard for my work and my appliances, but it was... <laughs> but it was that kind of thing where you just have to get over it because you think just... It's, you know, you can, that fear can so continue throughout the whole writing and production process of, oh, it's never going to be good enough. People are going to hate it. They're going to hate me. They're going to, you know, all of that. And you just, eventually you say, all of that is all going to happen. <laughs> so just, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Julia? Do you? Um, well, I think when you were talking about Arthur Miller, I, I mean, I don't really want to compare myself to him, but there is, I always feel a little bit like, why what's so special about me? Like, why would they want to hear exactly what I have to say about anything? But then I think, oh, well, maybe I just, you know, say it a little bit better, write it a little bit better. Than, you know, I don't know, but um, it's it mostly for me, it's a fear of not being good. It's a fear of um, sort of being exposed as not what maybe I crack myself up to be, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, for me, fear uh, has to do with uh, facing the blank page, is that uh, not knowing what I'm going to write about, because uh, I usually do not know what I'm writing about. I usually start with something. It could be, um, it could be just a, a face, a character, it could be a name, it could be some particular kind of behavior that I'm interested in exploring. So I never know what the play is going to be about, and just facing that blank page, and then thinking to myself, like, how did I write the last play? And how did it happen, you know? So um, I think it's, that's fear for me uh, more than anything. Uh, and I think it's a good thing. I think fear is important because um, 
And I also, when I see actors, you know, that those moments before going on stage and how nervous they get, I think it's important because something else kicks in, um, whether it's adrenaline or it keeps you human too. And I think that we need to be in touch with the human in us uh, when we're dealing with the arts. And um, so it's a good check and balance. Um, although I also think that, uh, that uh, fear can, can also keep us from, from from working and from uh, uh, challenging ourselves too. So I think it, it's a double-edged uh, knife. Uh, but I think what we shouldn't fear is fear itself. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what did well, I say? Well said. <laughs> I like that. Keep that. <laughs> <laughs> Regina, how about you? Uh, I've been living uh, daily with fear and pain for the last two weeks. <laughs> oh. I'm in previews right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's, uh, I haven't slept in two weeks. Uh, uh, for me to even function at all uh, is, is really hard uh, to just get up and, and put on your clothes. Is, is uh, facing fear every day. Uh, birthing uh, a new project. Um, and this is my first time on Broadway. Uh, I was going, okay, you know, okay. Uh, but actually, <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, God. Um, it's, been, it's been a really uh, very painful, difficult, and, and uh, I, hate, I hate admitting fear, but absolutely I'm scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, and that is the process. Uh, I... I I think you grow from it. You learn from it. Uh, but this has probably been one of the most difficult uh, experiences I've ever had. Um, um, and you go, well, okay. Uh, you'll live through it, and, and hopefully someone will produce you again. Uh, and, and I have faith in that. Um, uh, but this process is, is very hard. It's very hard. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just being very honest, I feel like um, uh, the stakes are much higher than I've ever faced before. And um, the thing, though, is that I have faith in the process. I have faith in, in the people that I work with. And, and that gets me through the day. Uh, talk to me after we open. <laughs> But uh, that's how I feel at this yeah. moment. Terrence? Well, I want to thank Paul and Julia for telling you about a fear I wasn't aware of, but now, of course, I have it. <laughs> what is the audience doing here? Why should they come see a play of mine? Never occurred to me that I had that fear. So thank you for the play opening in a week tonight. Our pleasure. Oh, God, why did you do that? I never knew I had that fear. I've caught it. It's like that flu. My own personal fear is, is always is a new one. My fears have shifted over the years um, as I've gotten older. Not wiser, but older. But I think the fear now is uh, after the um, debacle, whatever you want to call it, of Corpus Christi, which was my last produced play in New York City, I became very fearful as I was writing the new play called Dedication. I better not say this. I better not do that. I'll get in trouble again. <laughs> Manhattan Theatre Club will be mad at me. The Catholic Church will be mad. Someone will be mad at me. Yeah. And those voices, just go take the calmer route. Don't go there. 
And then you think, oh, I'm going to just take the other route just to say, not help. That's not art either. Yeah. You know, you gotta be level-headed, and that's that scared me that I was gonna. You think Corpus Christi upset you? Where do you see this one? Yeah. And that's not good writing out of hostility. So it really, I never felt so um, that you can, uh, I guess, get into trouble as a writer. I'd never. You know, people like plays, not like plays, but this was different. Yeah. And when you have death threats on your life, you really can get in big trouble. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, it's, not, it's not fun. And uh, yeah. I never saw that play until I saw it in just a production in Chicago about two years ago. They were doing it, and I bought a ticket. They didn't know I was there. And it was so nice to see my play without going through a metal detector and yeah. dogs barking at you and all that, <laughs> bullhorns. And I liked my own play, actually, uh, <laughs> where I'd never seen it in New York. So that's, that's a fear to stay true to yourself. And I think that, you know, it's a fear of um, people aren't going to like me. And I don't think an artist can worry about that. And yeah. uh, I think we've all written plays that have upset people. And that's another function of art, too. Mm. Or challenge people, certainly, and not be complacent. And But uh, that's a quiet fear. It's not like the fear you talked about, which I will experience tonight, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Why are these people here? I'll interview them. But I did have a man come up to me the other night, and he said, I, I'm, from the, I'm a middle-class man from New Jersey, and I think your language was unnecessarily raw. And I said, well, I'm sorry. Thank you for that. And this woman came and said, I'm his wife. I loved it. Don't stop. <laughs> so, but if you start thinking that, you know, is this raw or not? It's what you felt when you wrote it. And we were talking in the green room. A big comment we all get is, you know, and it's open to the audience. You're such nice people. Why do you have to use vulgarities in your writing? And it's just so. I can't believe people even ask you that. Don't they list? Don't they ride the subway? Don't yeah. they live in New York City? You know, yeah. and that's not vulgarity. The four-letter word is not vulgarity. What's going on in the world is vulgarity. Um, so, that, I think that's my biggest fear that I will. Well, this play will get done if I fix it that way. Yeah. And, it, and it's tempting. And as you say, the stakes on Broadway, don't they seem higher, Paul? You've done both. Oh, sure. Cause it, well, it's also, it's so public. Because I had an experience on a play called I Hate Hamlet that had, for anyone who has sort of a, a tabloid memory, um, that starred a, an English actor who was deeply mad and, and just alcoholic at an Olympian level. And he, um, <laughs> he was playing the ghost of John Barrymore. And the first act ended with a climactic onstage duel between Nicol and the young actor Evan Handler. And Nicol didn't care for Evan or anyone mm. else on the planet. And one night during the duel actually stabbed Evan and drew blood. Oh. And Evan, God bless him, who had was an absolute saint, left the stage at intermission and the production. And so the next morning, this, I went downstairs, and it was the full front page of the New York Post was a still of the duel with the huge headline, I Hit Hamlet. <laughs> uh -huh. And it, the little head was, Star Swats Actor on the Butt, to sort of New York Post poetry. <laughs> and this then continued, and there were TV crews from all over the world at the theater. It just became this sort of grand adventure. And it was, that, it was such a bizarre event, that, and people would come up to me and say, oh, Paul, 
this will be such a great chapter for your memoirs, like lucky me. And <laughs> I thought that what they told people, you know, in the lifeboats on the Titanic. But it was, um, it was suddenly, you know, it was, <laughs> it was just madness. And it was being played out in front of everybody. So it's, yeah, when you're on Broadway, it's, and I think any form of theater, you've got an audience, God willing, so that you're, you're, you're putting yourself on display. And that's a risk that, you know. Nobody, nobody put a gun to your head and said you could do that. You had to do that. So it, it comes with the territory. But yeah, it's very unnerving. And it's, it's funny. I think people sometimes imagine that because the actors are on stage, they're the most exposed. And yes, I, in a sense, they are. But I think the, the trembling playwright in the back of the theater is having maybe even a far larger breakdown. Because <laughs> that's because you're you're feeling the waves of, of response, lack thereof, <laughs> satisfaction, praise, what are the future? And it's, it's very daunting. And, but on the other hand, it's, it's the exhilaration, you know, and it's also why you don't do a play every day, because <laughs> you, you collapse. But, um, you know, and when things go well, there, there's no greater high. You know, it's just, it's, it's why theater will never die, because you only get that level of, of ecstasy from a live audience. You know, when the response is going well, when it shoots the actors that much higher, that's, there's nothing like it on earth. So that's, yeah. that's why you put up with all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, I feel much better. Right <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it is, this, this past week has been like, oh my God, uh, hell. Uh, it, it, when you have like a hundred people walk out, <laughs> you're oh. going, oh my God. But the, the people who stay, they're really wanting to stay. Uh, so, so that's good, and, and less people are walking out, and it is getting... It's, there's nothing like having there's someone nothing like that. see people putting on their coats at intermission, yeah. you know, oh, it's, man. it's not going to have a cigarette, they're yeah. heading for yeah. the subway. Yeah. 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 Or in the men's room, when you're standing at the urinal at intermission, the guy next to you says, isn't this the worst play you've ever seen? Now you don't pee, you don't pee, your room's a second rate. It's horrible. No, but you have to be careful, because you can read even the most violent audience reaction because last week during previews there was a woman who sitting of course dead center in the front row who in the about the second scene of, of Valhalla got up you know made her way through the, the all the other people ran to the back of the house went into the lobby and vomited mm -hmm. and I thought oh my god <laughs> did I do that and then god bless her she came back and she actually during the course of that that evening she left two more times to throw up but I loved her for coming back. back I thought if, if I was that sick, I'd just go home. She wanted but to I see your She play. wanted to see how it ended. She did. So I thought, oh, I could have taken this as my first review. Yeah. But luckily, she <laughs> she was she was very kind. So I think you have to the live event can go all sorts of ways. We don't need the critics really to tell us how our plays are going. The audience really lets yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and at a certain uh, point, yes, that's that's true. And at a certain point. Uh, um, if you are doing something that is outside of the boundaries of what people are expecting, then you have to stand behind yeah. the work yes. and say, this is yeah. the work. I'm that very proud of it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I appreciate you all talking about this because I think it's so important. I think people assume somehow, because you're sitting in these chairs and talking about work that's important to you, that somehow you know how to do it. And somehow, you know, you've, you don't have fear. But I think one of the most liberating things you can offer, uh, not only this audience, but anyone viewing, 
is to in fact expose that fear and expose that, you know, it is new every time. It is new every time. You hit that blank page every time, whether you've been writing for 40 years or for five years. You know, it's the same challenge. Your experiences inform it, but it's still, as you said, Terrence, you know, you're, you may be older, but you're not any wiser, so to speak. But in fact, you are. But you know. If there were formula writing a successful play, there would be so many successful yeah, plays. Yeah, exactly. And what do you think the rate is of successful plays? One in a couple of hundred, I would think. Yeah. yeah, successful anything. I think any, any well, art let's form. Just stick with plays. Exactly. I mean, it's just very hard. I, yeah. I say it's like trying to grow an orchid in Alaska mm. to, for mm. a play to blossom. There's yeah. so many mm. things that can go wrong from the time we finish our scripts to, I think, as Nilo said, about sets, costumes. It's all part of telling the story. And mm -hmm. especially a new work, you know, everyone has an idea now of what our old plays should be like. Yeah. But when our new plays, we're as good as the actors, designers, directors people we're working with, because yeah. no one knows what Drowning Crow is supposed to be yet, you know? There's no template for that play yet in New York City, certainly. <coughs> and then next, oh, it'll be another production of it, and there's another way to do it. But it's, it's, it's very hard, and, and you know, also off-Broadway, don't you think we work every bit as hard? Didn't you work as hard in your little theater in Miami oh, as yeah. you did at the Plymouth Oh, the Royale here, yeah. Oh, yes. It's not, Doesn't people change. think yeah. the pressure is greater, but we work just as hard Absolutely. off, off, off Broadway yeah. to be good, and the actors work as hard. Everyone does. Yeah. Um, there were a few uh, comments from the audience uh, during our break, uh, and several of them sort of jumping off of the Corpus Christi uh, thing. We talked about uh, censorship in terms of whether it's self-imposed or in other ways. Have any of you, uh, I know, Terrence, you just talked a bit about Corpus Christi, but have any of you felt that uh, within yourself, censoring yourself as you write, um, or have in fact felt it from outside sources and forces as well? I think one of the wonderful things about the theater is that alone among, among mediums, there's almost, there can be less censorship because the writers have far more legal controls over it. The Dramatist Guild contract means that no one can change a word of your work without your permission. So that at least at that level, also I think because the economics of theater are far more limited than in film and, and larger mediums, it does give you more freedom. That, and also because the audience can be more sophisticated if they've, if they've made a habit of going to the theater. I think that's what's one of the things that's so exciting and unique about theater is that the material can be far more challenging, far more provocative, far more delightfully obscene than in any other medium where you have ratings and you have um, <coughs> PG whatevers. That theater, thank God, doesn't come with those restrictions. So that, but self-censorship is something else. Well, and Terrence, I thought, put it beautifully, where you wonder sometimes, are you, are you deliberately censoring yourself or are you deliberately trying to be outrageous for its own sake, which can be another kind of trap. So it's, um, it's interesting, and that's also something the audience will tell you, is what, line, what lines they will and will not cross. And it sometimes that becomes the point, like, no, push them. You know, say, no, I don't care if, you, if, if this is going to upset you. Although I did remember, then you were saying about language, that my aunt, my beloved aunt, told me that same criticism at her husband's funeral. He was, sit he, he was lying in a coffin a few feet away, and she said, Paul, you know, your uncle always loved you, but he didn't know why you had to use that language. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, 
at his funeral? <laughs> but um, so that's the kind of thing where you, it's, it's amazing that people still come up with that in an age of, of you know, David Mamet, of people who, you know, for years now have been so saying every possible word. So, yeah, I think it's self-censorship is probably the greatest danger. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I wrote a play, um, the Tatiana play, that requires the nudity of a 12-year-old girl. I mean, it has to happen. It is really the turning point for the whole play. And um, that was interesting, the play that, interestingly, the play that I think brought me to the attention of a lot of theaters, but I was also told point blank that it would never be produced. And they were wrong. It is being produced. And um, it was also interesting to me that when it was read, the audience had no problem with it. Now, granted, they weren't seeing it, but they had no problem with it at all, the subject matter at all. Um, but the artistic directors were afraid of it. So I did go through some, you know, I did try to steer myself into a little bit more of a commercial vein to start getting myself produced, and um, it didn't work. You know, ultimately, Tatiana went up on its own, mm -hmm. and, you know, so, I've, yeah, hopefully I'm going to put that, yeah. those ideas aside. How about you, Nilo? Well, I'm thinking a lot about it uh, as as my colleagues are speaking. Um, and I think that there's always a, 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 a level of, of censorship all around you. and Because um, some people are going to like your work, some people are not going to like it. And, sure. But uh, I, I don't think about those things. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that I love about, um, I, I, I love doing my work as a writer, but I also like teaching. And I tell you why I like teaching, because one of the things that I like about being in a, in a classroom is that I'm with a group of young people who are willing to take chances, who they don't know their craft well, well enough yet, but they're, they're courageous and they want to experiment. They, wanna, they want to try new things. They want to break away from like formulas. And, uh, and I find that that keeps me on my toes, too, as a, as a writer. It keeps me fresh and keeps me being courageous and you know, tackling the next play and maybe writing it in a completely different way. And, uh, so, I don't know, I mean, something that I try to do uh, for myself is, is to combine the time that I spend as, as alone as a writer, and I'm certainly getting inspired by seeing other plays, but also getting inspired by the new generation. What are their concerns? And, uh, and again, that courage, which I think that has to be so alive in all of us, in, in the artists, because that's what art is all about, is, uh, is being courageous. It's interesting because uh, a gentleman just decided, um, a gentleman in Spain is translating my play, believe it or not, from, from, from the English to the Spanish. I could have done it, but I'm very busy these days. And I met with this gentleman in London, and he said that he had concerns with certain, uh, with, I think he feared the language, because the language in my play is, uh, Island of the Tropics, it's, it's, it's lyrical. And I faced him and I said, I've translated Lorca many times, and a lot of people, I've seen the translations of Lorca, and a lot of people don't trust his language. And, and I said, you know, be courageous. This is what the art is all about. You know, if you, if it, you know, face the poetry and go with it and run with it, that's what this play is all about. Anyhow, so maybe that's a form of censorship in some ways, too. Uh, <coughs> I, I try, I mean, I'm interested in beauty. I'm interested in... And, you know, uh, I find that sometimes I got momentary uh, comments from people like saying, well, people don't speak that way. And I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not interested in, in having the kind of language that one hears in a bodega, in a grocery store. Because to me, that's not art. I find that when that we're writing for the stage and when one is writing for the stage, you know, the, the language uh, 
I'm interested in beauty, you know? And I think that to, to have beauty on the stage is, is extremely, you have to be courageous. What about Gina? Uh, yeah, yeah, censorship, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you, when you're watching 100 people walk out of your play, do you, does a part of you want to go, does a part of you stand up and begin to try to censor yourself on that? No, Good. I mean, you can't. Good. You, yeah. just, you just face it. Yeah. You stand behind it, you face it. Well, we, we have a few minutes left, and, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of things about uh, the craft and about the environment out there. You know, what's, what's, what's our role in this? How do, you know, when we talk about, you know, there's too many workshops or, you know, I need this or I need that. <laughs> you know, you talked about the Dramatist Guild, you know, it has a provision in there that says you, you get the final word. You get the final word on casting. You get the final word on it, every word being as is. And... Um, and ultimately, whether or not a production is done. Do we need to say no more to production? Do the, the young person who is being thrusted into a situation where it's an opportunity, but it comes with a certain amount of baggage, is, there, is that something we've got to take on more to change the environment out there? <coughs> or what can we do to embrace um, the environment and make, make uh, it a better place for your fellow writers as well as yourselves? Let me start with you, Terrence. I, I think write more plays. Uh, keep writing. It's very easy. Paul said, you know, you can't write a play every day or have one produce. It's too emotionally draining. Right. You have to go out and have a life. I yes. think I think you got to get really away from the theater sometimes. It can get very insulated. But we've got to keep writing plays. And I think, as Neela said very wisely, courage is a great part of this. It's a great act of will to assemble people, sit in a room, put the lights down, and they go up on one end of it, and tell them a story. Do you think we can hold their interests? That takes a courage, I think. And uh, it just, you know, I, I wrote a play about Maria Callas, and someone once said about her, she didn't lose her voice, she lost her courage. And I knew exactly what they meant, the will to go out there and say, I can hit that high C, and yeah. she lost that. And I've seen actors lose their nerve, and I've seen writers lose their nerve. And that's important. That's very hard to talk about publicly. It's a very private thing. Yeah. But I think it's very important. I'm so glad we acknowledged it today. I think being an artist is a very courageous thing to be. But I think the main thing we do is write our plays. And I do believe if you write a good play, it will be done. It may not be done on Broadway with Nathan Lane and, you know, um, Madonna, but it will be done. Yeah. And that's the important thing. And all of us have plays that have begun so modestly. And because they had some quality and reached other people, they were eventually produced in New York. And you people have seen them, I hope, and uh, care about them enough to invite us to be on this panel. Yeah. So you've got to remember that. We have to do the work first. You can't... I'm going to write this great play for you. You've got to write the play, yeah. you know. That's number one. So I, I believe that very strongly. That's the main thing we do. I think um, working with younger people, getting them interested in the theater, the possibilities of theater when you said what a heady art form it is, that the intoxication that happens between a live play and an audience does not happen at Lord of the Rings. I mean, I loved it, but it's not the same thing as when you're seeing the show that's really cooking or they're really laughing at like one of Paul's comedies. And that's wonderful, and that's why you do it. And I think working in the theater is its own reward. And anyone who goes into the theater to be to get rich is very, very stupid. <laughs> uh, you, you do it to have a great life. And, it's a, and as writers, we do have wonderful lives. And 
as Paul said about the drama skill, no one can make us change our plays. The buck stops with the five of us sitting up here. Well, I'm being flagged that uh, time is very short. Sorry, I want, no, so. I want to thank you for that because I think it's a wonderful place to leave this discussion. Um, and I want to thank uh, each of you for your courage. Um, one, to sit on this panel, but most importantly for the work that you offer us every day. Uh, you help illuminate uh, things in ourselves that move us and, and take us to places that just uh, uh, we are privileged to go. So thank you all, and thank you all for joining us today. That's the excitement that we talk about when you go into the theater that's unlike anything else. The, the rustle of the program and the waiting for either the first chord of, of, of the orchestra or the curtain to go up. There is maybe this time. And even if it isn't this time, there is still something that is very magical and very wonderful about live professional theater.